Let's pray and then we'll turn to Mark chapter 10. Oh, Father, thank you for your countless blessings. And as we sing that song, Lord, together, many of us have sang that song in deep sorrow at times. Trying to soften the hurt that may be on our hearts. Certainly, the gentleman who wrote that as he had lost family members was overwhelmed with grief. And yet, Lord, even in our darkest hours, those who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can turn to you in those darkest times and find joy. And not just joy, but as the writer wrote, the bliss of joy, the exceedingly abundance of joy, because our Savior died for us. That's what makes us sing. That's what makes us stay in the battle, Lord. Whether that is life or marriage or raising children or or keeping a job, all of those things, Lord, it is the gospel that uh, pushes us forward, Lord, compels us. And so we pray that even as we deal with a very difficult subject, the subject of marriage and divorce, that you would help us turn to the gospel to guide and direct our marriages, to grant forgiveness, to lead us to repentance, Lord, if may be the case. Lord, we ask that your truth, your gospel would flow over us as we study this today. Father, we do as remember, as Gary did, the dear people in the Bahamas, Lord. That was a terrible storm. There are many that are suffering, many loss of life, Lord. We pray, Lord, first and foremost, that your glory would be seen throughout this, Lord. And it is difficult at times to see through the destruction. But we pray people will be saved. We thank you for Brother Randy Crow as he goes over and takes stuff that we have gathered and funds that we have gathered, Lord, to help there, that you would give him great gospel moments with people. That those pastors on those rural islands, Lord, would be encouraged to know that there's a church that loves them and is praying for them. And Randy would encourage those dear brothers to preach the word in the midst of the storm. And so we, we pray for that, Lord, and we ask that you'd be merciful to them. Lord, we think of others now that are even in hospitals as we speak right now. There's others going through treatment. There's difficulties, Lord, in hurting people. And we pray that you would encourage them today, Lord. They would find their strength in you, that Christ would be their all in all, Lord. Lord, have us look to you in all things. Thank you for this body, Lord. Thank you for building your church here. May we have a mind and a heart to worship and exalt you in all things that we do, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12 is our text this morning. It is a rather difficult text in some ways. It is a text clear-cut on God's view of marriage and divorce. But Mark 10 is an interesting passage, as we're going to see over the next few weeks. It is the passage that records several teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ from when he leaves his Galilean ministry to when he arrives at Jerusalem, which we call Uh, the triumphal entry. Mark dedicates one chapter to probably somewhere between three to six months. And these chapters hold within them amazing teachings. 
Now, Mark and John cover a little more of this time of, of Jesus' ministries. He's traveling along with his disciples, preparing them for the birth of the church. But this chapter here in Mark 10 deals with just a few things. And as I studied this um, over the last couple of weeks, preparing for Mark chapter 10, it is amazing the things God chose to wrote it right in his word for us today in this little short time frame. Think with me as you, look at John, as you look at Mark 10 with me, notice he deals with the problem of divorce. He deals with true marriage, who designed it and where it came from. He deals with gender. These are the things he is choosing to deal with with his disciples before he goes to the cross. How applicable today. He doesn't leave off there. He blesses little children that are brought to him. And uses them as an illustration for the gospel and true saving faith. He interacts with a rich young ruler who is, who is struggling with a, uh, a desire for wealth, but, but on a quest for eternal life. So applicable to today. He teaches his disciples yet again of his coming death, burial, and resurrection. That's the key to all these issues. He warns his disciples of the dangers of idolistic wealth, where the things of this world become so attractive. He's warning them of that. He warns his disciples of the prideful desire desire for position of power. And then in the end of the chapter, he deals with a blind man who has better vision of him than those who can see. This man knows he's the Messiah. And so all this is done on this trip from Galilee to Jerusalem. And Mark 10 records these things for us. And as I studied each and every one of these and working my way down through this, I said, oh Lord, every one of these subjects are so important to the church today. Now this journey to Jerusalem, he brings these subjects out and in all of it, he's going to bathe in his saving grace of the cross. And, and what hit me as I studied each of these, and you have to be careful with this because you can study on divorce and marriage. You can study on children and, and riches and all those things. But, but you can't forget this. Where is he headed? In all those subjects with all the difficulties, and, and, and many of us have been touched by some of these difficulties in this room. Where is he headed? He's headed to the cross. It is the solution to every one of these issues that are in here. And we must keep our eye on that. However, today's topic, God's word is going to lead us to a very powerful teaching. Some may hear this today and find great encouragement as you realize the fruit from the battle of obedience you've been in in your marriage. And you've applied the gospel and you'll, you'll be encouraged by God's word. Others... This may be a difficult passage because the gospel has been missing in your marriage and you're suffering, you're suffering from a lack of joy because the gospel is not there. Still, others have felt the pain of divorce, either your own or your parents or close friends and you've had to struggle through these things. Singles, you've heard that marriage is a scam, it's a joke, live together, find out if you're really good at being together. You've heard the lies of all of these things. Today, Jesus is going to give you the truth. And finally, there's, there's others maybe in this room who've chosen unbiblical divorces. And you wonder whether, whether what, what God thinks of you, how he thinks of you, and what he's going to do. 
Well, this is an important passage. It's an extremely important passage in today's church as the world continues to press in on us. Good news is the Bible contains the good news. Isn't that great? All these events, even these most difficult subjects that we're going to tackle today, is overcome by the gospel. And it isn't a crutch. We don't lean on the gospel. We don't sing those songs. Some people may say, well, look, they just sin and live any way they want, and, and they have this gospel. Oh, no. The gospel brings us to repentance. The gospel is why you sing so loud. I can hear you behind us singing this, these joys going, that's me. <laughs> that's me. I'm the free one. See, this is what, this is what keeps us going. Because our Lord did save us. And we, and we remind it, the gospel has such a powerful impact on us. How can we, we who believe, continue in sin any longer? Right? We know that. Romans chapter 6. And yet, there is pain, isn't there? Sin causes division. Sin kills relationships. That's its goal. And for down through time, since since God wrote the beautiful commands of marriages in Genesis 1 and 2, man has constantly spit on them. And it's been an all-out attack against God. And so here, the Lord is going to deal with it. So no matter where you're at, if maybe you suffer from divorce because of someone else, or, or you've been divorced yourself, or wherever you're at, the gospel has an answer for your situation. And the most glorious person of Christ can bring change to any situation. We believe that. We believe Jesus is not some magic silver bullet. <laughs> we believe he is sustaining grace in our life. And we love him. But first, sin must be addressed. Repentance is the only way to restoration and healing. And these texts help us deal with this. I read a quote from Spurgeon this week that really struck me on this, really tied to this subject in a way. He wasn't speaking on marriage, but he was speaking on obedience. He said this, this is, the, this is an immediate about the calls of Christ. There is an immediate about the calls of Christ. Whatever he bids us to do, we must not delay to do. And now listen to what he says here, and this ties into what Jesus is going to say. Duties that are put off tend to harden the heart. Duties, responsibilities, are responses to the word of God that are put off. When you know what to do, but you do not do it, James says is what? It's sin. And the Spurgeon's saying they tend to harden your heart. And you're going to see in this text, Jesus says, you got certificates of divorce because your hearts are hard. All sin comes from a hardened heart. And today the Lord wants to soften our hearts to truth. And he wants us to turn back to God's word. Well, theology drives your conduct. What you know about God, what you believe about the Bible, in your heart and soul and in your mind, that's how you will live. Head knowledge is different than heart knowledge. The longest road in the world is from the head to the heart, they say. But when we understand God's theology of what he teaches and what he believes and wants us to grasp, that's when our conduct begins to change. Well, let's look at a couple of thoughts today quickly. Number one, Jesus teaches on the subjects only the gospel can fix. 
I wanted to put this little thought in here because verse 1 is intriguing to me. Getting up from there, he went out to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once again began to teach them. Well, this is the completion of the Galilean ministry. For two and a half years, he's been in that greater Galilean area. There he's done miracles and preached countless sermons. He's gathered his disciples. He's watched people reject him and move away from him on his teaching. And now he's begun one last journey. And this is fascinating to think about. One more journey. And it's going to end at the cross. That's the goal. That was a goal from the beginning. That was God's plan from, from, from time uh, before there was time that the Lord Jesus would end up at the cross for you and I. And so he is now engaged, embarked on this journey. And all these subjects are dependent on the cross work. Our, our saving faith, our lives, our marriages, our parenting, our jobs in this world, everything is dependent upon him getting to that cross in order for us to finish our race. The Pharisees and their religious culture had removed God from marriage. They had just done it. And the self-fulfillment desires of the heart had drugged man around, and it still happens today. If, if you're not controlled by the Spirit of God and through His Word and, and a, a, a knee that's bent to Christ, sin just grabs you and says, we're going here. And you go, well, I don't want to do that. doesn't matter because I own you, and we do what I say. And that can be done through religious works of, you know, looking like a good person, or it can be done from the darkest evils that you can imagine. Sin controls, and it takes people around. And, and, and here, when it came to marriage, this God-ordained institution was under attack. And it had been attacked since the days of Moses, since he wrote the law. And here, on the way to his death, Jesus is going to set the record straight. Now, what's fascinating about this text, as you read through it, Jesus chooses to address this issue of marriage by teaching God's word, not what he thinks. Now, he's certainly God, but he goes right to the text. Notice the Bible says, as was his custom. I read that this week, and I thought, Lord, let always my custom be to teach from the word of God. Please don't let me vary from the master's teacher, the master teacher. As was his custom, I hope when you come to Riverbend, you know that you need a Bible and it's going to be open and you're going to hear from God's word. I hope you get accustomed to that. Jesus is the master. We want to teach from the word of God. I love that. And isn't it amazing that um, a major cultural issue that's going on both then and now, God sends the Lord Jesus Christ to that moment to teach from God's word. Hmm. I think marriage is a major national issue, isn't it, right now? And what better form than we have to turn to the word of God? But Christ knew their hearts were hardened, and he knew that's why he had to go to the cross. Let me take you to a passage just to kind of prepare us to look at this. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 2 with me. I thought about this text, and as I did this kind of opening point for an introduction, we're dealing with a, a very difficult subject, one that has affected probably everyone in this room one way or another. And the question is, do we let the world affect our opinion of divorce, remarriage, marriage, all of those things, or do we go to God's word? 
This is not a new problem for us here in, in September 2019. It has been a problem all along, probably since Moses wrote the law. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit. According to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. What a statement. Right now he's opening this statement here, this little section, Apostle Paul, is he's warning the church in Colossae, and this letter probably hit a few other churches as well, a particular Colossae church and to Riverbend today, that, that there is always a, an asserted attack coming against you with philosophy and empty deception, with traditional thinking versus what that of what God's word says, what Jesus Christ says. There's always coming at you. And so he warns us here, see that no one takes you. Why? Because somebody's always trying to take you. They're always pushing a, a godless view of marriage, a godless view of, of gender, a godless view of parenting, a godless view of work, a godless view of all kinds of things, right? So Paul says, look, don't let them take you captive to these things. No, no, notice he says, according, uh, according to Christ, right at the end of verse 8. Then he can't help. I love Apostle Paul. When he starts, he mentions Christ, and now he just goes off, right? It just links his thoughts to his glory. So after he mentions, rather than according to Christ, look what he does. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's God, is what he's saying there. Are you captured by Christ, or are you captured by the world's opinion? Which has captured you? Because Christ is God. In him, all the fullness of God exists. So we're not dealing with a little God, Jesus, and, and the bigger God, Father. As we know, he is God. Verse 10, he says, now he brings us into the equation. And in him, this one who's full of deity, right? Fully God. You have been made complete. Oh, that's good. That's good. That means the Father sees me in the sun. He does not look at me outside of the sun. I'm enveloped in the sun. I'm complete in him. The Greek word means lacking nothing. I have everything in Christ. Father always looks at his children that way. Notice he goes on to say, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Whoa. Over all rule and over all authority? Marriage? Gender? Life? I mean, all of these things? Yes, he has all rule over them. He said that his ascension, the Father has given me over authority over all things. Look at verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, what does that mean? Well, circumcision was to cut away, right? Not getting too graphic, cut away disease and stuff that could be caused there, right? God circumcised our hearts through Jesus Christ is the idea here. He's removed all of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He cut away the hardness. He cut away the sinfulness of our hearts. The things that would take us to hell. He cut that away by his cross work. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions, meaning I had no spiritual pulse, I could not offer to God, I could not choose him, walk down an aisle, uh, uh, say a prayer, I couldn't do any of that when I was absolutely dead in my sins, God 
save me. This is what the text says, right? Notice at that point, when I was dead, I was uncircumcised of the flesh. He, I was dead, I was hardened. My heart was calloused. And, and here in verse 13, he made you alive together with him. Wow, what a statement. You may be feeling like you're old. <laughs> but brother and sister, if you know Jesus Christ, you are alive. In fact, you're not just alive, you're eternally alive. God's made you alive He's forgiven all, look at this, oh, you've got to circle that little word, haven't you? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Do you like that all? I, I, I love that all. <laughs> that means the blood of Christ washed back over every sin I ever committed and washed forward over every one I ever did. And that's not, a, that's not a just a, well, now I can live any way I want. That's an actual worship statement, isn't it? Oh, Lord, help me live for you because you died for me. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. (laughs) Did you know he had a decree against you? If you're to stand before God and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a decree that's written against you. You will have this statement. The wages of your sin is eternal death. Pay now. That's what it says. That's what you have written against you if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what Jesus does. Notice the beauty of the gospel. Having canceled out that certificate of debt. Oh, Lord. You've given me what I don't deserve. The wages of sin is death. But, but, isn't there a great conjunction there? Romans 6, right? But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. So, I I read you this text as you turn back to Mark chapter 10. Each and every time Jesus talks about these difficult subjects, don't forget where he's headed. He's headed to the cross. He's headed to the cross. Now, second thought. Divorce is the result of the hardness of heart against God. Divorce is the result of hardness of heart against God. Look with me at verses 2 through 5. Some of the Pharisees came up to, to Jesus, testing him. And they began questioning him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and just send her away. But Jesus said to him, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. And what does, it, what does hardness of heart look like? I think sometimes when we read that, we think of a person who shakes their fist at God. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think the worst hardness of heart is, comes in the religious culture. And I think that's what Jesus is dealing with here today. This self-centered heart that slowly hardens, but it's all hidden and calloused around this religious behavior. It is the most damning, most hardest of all hearts. Because Satan convinces you that you're a good person and you go to church and you give some money and you help Bahamians and you do this and that, and yet all the while you will not repent and turn from sin. Your heart just grows harder and harder. And so it always isn't this 
shake your fist in the face of God. Most of the time when someone does that, they're probably going to get saved soon. Jesus here chooses divorce. He chooses this issue because he wants to expose this internal hardening that was on the Pharisees' heart. And I'll show you through this, I think the disciples had the same view as the Pharisees had on divorce. He wants that exposed. He wants that dealt with before these men lead the church. Then as well as now, divorce was prevailing, prevailing evil. It was, it was prevalent in society. I, I don't know if you read your Bible and you, you, you may not think that, but divorce was prevalent, as prevalent or more prevalent in the time of Christ. It was a huge problem. And when Jesus is directly confronted with the problem, when they ask him this, he is undeterred in his response. Look with me at verse 2. Some of the Pharisees came up to him, testing him. And they began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. I need to understand, this is a new group of Pharisees. He's now in the Perea area. He's moved beyond the Jordan. He's working his way down towards Jerusalem. But these Pharisees are no different than the Galilean Pharisees. They are against the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a brand new set. Most of these Pharisees have never even seen Jesus before. And they already hate him. They're already against him because he speaks the truth. And as soon as Jesus makes this public appearance, because he's traveling now. Remember, he's coming out of the houses. He's been, he's been closed off to his disciples. He's been teaching them. But he's got to move, right? He's got to get to Jerusalem. The moment he's out in public, here comes the crowds. And here comes the religious leaders. And the attack is on. I think many still today rejects Jesus' teaching when, when we don't agree with him. I've met with so many people in these last couple years who come to me and hear the church's biblical teaching on marriage or gender. And, and I read them these texts. And they get mad at you. And they go, listen, friend, I love you, brother. I, I really want to help you here. I'm trying to tell you what God says. But the moment that, that what God says disagrees with what you think, your presuppositions, how you think Jesus is and how God is and what I think the Bible should do or say, there's a conflict. But not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. Notice the question they ask him. It's loaded here. Is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? See, this, this question is not after information. <laughs> Believe me. They already have their view. Nobody's going to change their view. They're trying to trap Jesus. But it brings out their heart, so Jesus deals with it. They just want a yes or no answer. There, there were strong differences between uh, many of the religious leaders. The strictest leaders believed that there was absolutely no case for divorce outside of uh, the worst immorality. Um, they were rare. Most of the Pharisees believed in writing a certificate of divorce for anything. And you have to understand, part of what Jesus is doing is he's protecting women because women were just slaves in a way. They were, they were property at this time of life. But the Jewish leaders, more or less, in whole, believed a very liberal use of divorce. And the sin nature of human beings had dominated their interpretation of the scriptures. Now, what they would go back to, and you can look at this your moment, but I'll quote it to you, is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. This was their verse. And bad exegesis, bad hermeneutics can make you say whatever you want the Bible to say. Do you know new religions prop up every day because somebody takes a verse out of context and starts something new? And pretty soon you got a prayer Jabez. 
because somebody found a, a prayer of a guy who we never know what happened to him. I always said he probably got hit by a chariot the next day. Um, but we, we start this whole movement. And where's that now? Gone because misuse of the scriptures. This is exactly what the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had done. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her. And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in her hand and sends her out of the house. Now this is the verse that they loosely interpret. In fact, they loosely interpret the word, this English word called some indecency. It's eva is the Hebrew word um, here. And it's always related to not just any kind of indecency or problem she may have had it's tied to some of the worst immoral behavior you can find but that's not how they translated it they translated it so that i can get rid of this piece of property anytime i want because women were property and if she burnt my toast or my dinner there are records within the jewish recordings of certificates of divorce of a woman burning dinner or breakfast and she was let go (laughs) like hired help because that's what they were they were property think about how far removed that is from genesis chapter 2 Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. I have made you the perfect mate. You've seen all of my creation. I've had you name them so you know everything I did. There's nothing suitable for you, so I'm going to make something that is your helper because you need to help, and she's going to need to help, and you're going to be a great pair, and you're going to complement one another, and you're going to love one another. And then we have this. I'm going to have to let you go because you burned the toast. How far has man fallen? Now we have prenups and any way, hey, anytime you want out of this, great. In fact, let's just live together so that we never have to deal with this kind of stuff, right? How far man has fallen from the Genesis 2 chapter record here. Notice in the verse 2, it says they're doing this to tempt him. To tempt him. They're not seeking truth. This is very important. You see that, you go, they're not after what Jesus is going to teach them. This is Rabbi Jesus They don't want to know what he has to say. They're trying to test him, tempt him, trying to run him into a corner. Not not what they need. They want to pit him against mainstream leadership. Now, this is all part of this, right? So the mainstream leadership that has control over the temples, the synagogues, all of that, the mainstream leadership believes in very loose rights, tickets of divorce for anything. Only a very strict sect of some of the men who studied the word held to uh, only adultery. So this is going to pit them against it. And then think about this. He's moving to Perea. He's across the Jordan. Now guess whose territory he's in? Whose jurisdiction he's in? Herod's. The one who killed John the Baptist for what? Because he taught against divorce and remarriage. So what they're trying to do is, here we go, we got Jesus here, we're going to pit him against the spiritual leadership, and we're going to pit him against Herod, and we're going to get rid of this guy. That's the whole goal of this. But I love Jesus. His promptness is amazing. Look at verse 3. They, they try to trap him, they try to test him. Their, their question has nothing to do with the scriptures. What does Jesus do? Verse 3, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Not what yourself 
your liberal, self-centered, poor interpretation of the scriptures say, but what does God's word say? I love that. And from a pastor and a biblical counselor or someone who sits with people, I promise you, as gentle and kind and speaking the truth in love as we will, we are always going to say, what does the Bible say? Because I'm telling you, friend, we got nothing better than that. If you want my opinion, you're in a lot of trouble. Because I may come up with some harebrained idea. I hope not. I'm bound to God's word. Not only for your marriage, but for Gina and I's. We're bound to the word of God. And I love this response. You know what? Clearly, you've made your statement. Let me tell you, mine is, what does God's word say? It's a great question to ask people. You can do it very kindly. You can say, hey, do you know what the Bible says about that? It's one of the leading things when I'm often talking to somebody, trying to get into a gospel conversation, I use that phrase. Hey, do you know the Bible says something about that? And they're going, really, the Bible says something about that? Yeah, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Can I share some of that with you? I'm working for a gospel conversation. And here, Jesus says, you know what the Bible says? Notice he says, command you. Uh, He uses a very strong term. Most of the translations will have that in there. What did Moses command you? Notice that a true authority. He's not asking your opinion. (laughs) Jesus is asking, what does God say? Notice verse 4. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, Moses permitted. Moses allowed it. In other words, Moses has turned this over to us. See, they're attempting to say that the law gave us the right to divorce our wives for whatever we want. We have the right to do that. And all we have to do is provide a certificate of divorce. They were more concerned with the legal aspect than what God thought. How am I going to handle this legally? How are we going to deal with the money? Right? How are we going to deal with the house? How, do you have any control over that? Listen, if I get this legal certificate, it's done. You see where they're going with this? Does that not make sense today? If, if those of you have had to deal with people going through divorces, we have to deal with this all the time. Because it concerned often, often, is not with marriage, the covenant that God has, you've entered in with God and this other person. It's now down to the legal aspect of it. And that's all these men cared about. I can just get rid of him. I want my freedom. Don't you know I'm trying to find my soulmate? I need my freedom. This is that self-centered, based view. There's no concern with God here. Have you heard someone say, well, I think divorce will bring God glory. That doesn't, no one ever says that. Marriage brings God glory. Hard, fought, gospel-centered battles in marriage, learning to love one another, learning to fight for joy through those things, those difficult times, that brings God's glory because he's worth staying together. He's worth living for. Divorce is just like sin. It kills It divides, and it ruins. That's sin's goal. And so now, here we are before these men who thought they have this freedom, and Jesus is going, this is what God's word says. And Jesus is going to give them the real answer, that they'll leave speechless, the the ends the conversation. Notice what he does in verse 5. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of your heart, 
with a hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. What a statement. This does not mean that Jesus saw that the law allowed divorce for just any reason. But what he's teaching is Moses conceded because of the condition of your fallen nature and that your heart had become hard. Sin had taken over you. Notice the word because. It's very important here. Jesus is marking a fact here. It's an accusative pronoun here. And it's giving emphasis, a charge of their selfishness, of their lack of love. He's charging. This is done because of this. I've never had somebody walk in my office and I'm divorcing my spouse because I love Jesus. Doesn't happen. They love self. There's battles that are going on. And while calling attention, he, he's showing that their, their, their hearts are hard, but he's also, notice in this text, he's calling attention to God's high view of marriage. Verse 5 says, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this commandment. This statement on marriage. So he's showing, look, this is man's sinful position, but God holds a very higher position of marriage. And we should be striving for that. It's hard and difficult as it is at times. And we could stand up around here and go down this room and all of us could go, wow, but we had a season in our life where, man, selfishness was about ready to take us. And God finally bent our knee and we humbled ourselves and he gave us grace and our marriage survived. Probably many of us could say that in this room, if you were honest. And so he's saying, look, there's a higher view of marriage here. The command in Deuteronomy 24 was not about the certificate of divorce, but that's what they made it about. It was about immorality. And God was gracious in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Instead of death that was deserved for divorce, it now allowed grace for certain situations, for sinful situations, to allow a woman or a man out of this marriage that was, that was totally given over to sin. But they missed the grace and, and they made the text about their freedoms. I wrote this in my notes. I want you to hear this. Change what the Bible says and your heart will hard. Try to justify your sin, your heart will harden. Live in unrepentant sin, your view of God and his word will change. It has to. I've had people say, well, I just don't believe that, Pastor. <laughs> okay, it doesn't change. I don't believe that that's what the Bible says. Well, I don't know what you're reading. Can I read it again to you? Because it doesn't matter what you believe. Ultimately, it matters what the Bible says, what God says. And even in some of these hardest things, I know some of your hearts are reeling right now because there's difficult situations that, that may be in this room or you've gone through them. It is important that we understand, God, I want to... Good, I'm back up. Three, marriage and gender are God's plan. Marriage and gender are God's plan. Look at verse six with me. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Notice the but there. I think it's in all of the translation, the conjunction. It's a contrasting conjunction, we would call this. Jesus is about to reveal the difference between their low view of marriage and God's high view of a marriage. It's, it's the divine intention of God. goes. He takes it all the way back to the beginning. This is the divine intention of God. This is what God said marriage is about. And he takes them right back to what God says. 
And there in Genesis, he brings about this mankind that was God's crowning jewel of his six-day creation. He made man in his own image. And just as God is one inseparable being, so he intended man and women to be inseparable. That's why he said he made us in his own image. Have you ever put that together? The Trinity teaches you to stick to your marriage. God never separates himself from Father, Son, and Spirit. And he made us in his image. And so Jesus has taken him back to this beautiful instruction before sin had ever hit the world to say this is what God intends. But the divine intention of marriage dating back all the way to the beginning of the human race was not being carried out at this time. The presence of sin had hardened people's hearts. Notice God says that he made them male and female. He's quoting Genesis 1.27. He is quoting God's word to these people who are trying to reject it. This is the God you say you serve. This is the God you say you offer sacrifices for. This is the God you say that you believe in. Here's what he says. Here's what he said. And there's rejection to that. And he's making a clear distinction between the sexes here he's, he, that was established at creation. He's quoting the text as proof that God made the sexes for the basis of marriage. Male and female, it, it, it doesn't have an article in the, the original here, and so it's directly tied to Adam and Eve. He's pointing to their creation as the example for us. That's my examples right in front of you. I've given it to you. Read a great article this week. Of, I don't know if the man was even saved, but he spoke everything in the world, animal and plant life, tells us that there are sexes and we must protect it. Because we will bring destruction to our planet if we neglect it. Also, notice that Jesus is quoting from two chapters of Genesis. Not only just the chapter 1, but he's also quoting from chapter 2. Look at verse 7. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Jesus takes the words of Adam. I mean, can you imagine this? He's taking the words that Adam probably spoke as he stood, stared into the eyes of Eve in response to God's special gift. I mean, that's what he would have said here, right? This is right out of Genesis 2.24. For this reason, now Adam's probably looking into her eyes like, whoa, man, um, God, we'll leave everything for this one. Isn't that what he's saying? And he's quoting this. Jesus is quoting what Adam is saying probably to Eve. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. They don't even have a father and mother. So the statement must go way past Adam and Eve. He's quoting this statement. A man shall leave his father and mother at the height of marriage in the garden. And, he, and, and listen, this is what I tell people all the time. Your marriage is the family. Children leave and cleave and start their own. Don't break the family up. You're, you're the family. You're the example. You're it. The children leave and start their own up, and so he's, he's relating that they are the ones who will leave and cleave to one another. That leave marks the strength of the marriage vow. Oh, leave all of this. We watch young men and women do it all the time. Just got to marry a pretty cool couple here not long ago. Um, uh, my son and my new daughter-in-law. Man, they left us. 
which is really good. And then they marry each other and cleave to each other, and they're doing great, and we're just thrilled with that, right? That's God's plan for it. You remember that day when you stood on a stage in a church or out by a river or in somebody's backyard or in a barn, and you said, God, I vow to love this woman or this man. I will leave this and cling to her. Oh, cherish those vows, brothers and sisters. These are vows God set down for us. Leaving is the one thing, but cleaving is another. <laughs> cleaving is another. We're already changing the boys' rooms around in my office. <laughs> you ain't coming home. Because you're cleaving now. And cleaving has this term of stuck together, right? Inseparable. What God has joined together, he's going to tell us here. Let no man put asunder. Look at verse 8 with me. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. According to God, these are two lives fused into one. Wow. What an amazing thing. Who would have thought of this stuff? Man doesn't come up with this stuff. We're not smart enough. God takes two lives and makes them into one. This is how he looks at your marriage. God blends two unique individuals and makes them better as one. And he still your, has your individual gifts. It, people say, well, this has got to just be a nothing and be to hell. No, 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 no. He brings glory to himself uniquely through the woman and uniquely through the man. And he blends them together to make them a magnificent pair who can bring glory to God. You're better together than apart in God's eyes until he says no anymore. And often he takes that by, by, he takes some of the loved ones home. And as hard as that is, you talk to someone who's lost their spouse. If you don't believe what I'm saying and you don't want to believe God's word, go talk to someone who's lost their spouse who loved them dearly. And let them tell you about the doctrine of oneness. How precious that is. This is not a, a business partnership here, is it? Not something that can be dissolved because we no longer have the same philosophy of business, so we're just going to dissolve this. This is not that, is it? This is this covenant before God. This is the doctrine of oneness, two lives brought together. And again, I bring you back to the thought of the Trinity. If God made man in his own image, and just as God is one inseparable being, so he intended man and woman to be one inseparable union that he put together. This is marriage. I can't speak medically here. You can ask Dr. Rick. But if you rip my arm out of my socket, it's probably going to leave a scar. And whatever you put on there to replace it will not be the same. And I've warned many a couple who are on the verge of divorce that said, you're going to tear that flesh apart? Do you know the damage that's going to cause? There will be scars and hurts forever. You can't do that. This is what God has done. What God has placed together. Notice in verse 9, he makes this final statement here to these unbelieving religious people. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So with all that said by Jesus, as he rehearses the biblical record, he makes the obvious statement, whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. Wow, can you imagine the faces of the Pharisees as they're thinking about writing their certificate of the divorce of the new woman they got because they didn't like her meal? 
And here Jesus is saying, don't you dare separate what God put together. This is beyond your burnt toast. This is beyond your disagreements. God has joined this together. And so Jesus fires this strong warning through great exegesis of God's word. He exegeted the text in front of them. And, and, and they, had, they had just added on and made a mess of God's word. But here he gives a, a clear prohibition of, of, to be carefully considered of what God says of marriage. And, and I would just charge us all. We all get involved with, with relationships with other people, whether you're a pastor or not. Someone comes to you and says, well, you know, my husband's doing this or my wife's doing this. Be careful with your counsel. Speak God's word to them. Because God said, whatever I have put together, well, you don't want to step in front of that. You don't want to get at odds with him on this. And so Jesus' contrasting view just leaves them empty, right? This is the end of the conversation with these men. And so, in closing this point out, I think, well, how do, how do I view marriage covenant? How do you view the marriage covenant? Is this your view? Is this your view of what, do you believe what God says? Is this what Riverbend believes? Is this what happens when counseling happens within the walls or the ministry of Riverbend? We believe this. And marriage is suffering great attacks that are really against God because this is, look, when we talk about the Trinity and marriage, you know these attacks are against God. That's what Satan's doing. And let me just say this before I finish my last few points. If you failed to keep God's covenant of marriage, I beg you to repent. Stop the blame game. Repent from your own sins. And if it's right, if it's truly from your heart and God has broken your heart of it, he, forgive, he does forgive. That's why he's going. He's headed to the cross for this but stop blaming I've had so many people say well yeah they probably did do those horrible things (laughs) what'd you do be right with God be right with all people live at peace with all men as far as possible love the gospel love others God will help you so I encourage you be right with God and some of you may need to talk to somebody. Don't, don't walk away from this sermon and go, man, I'm just destroyed. Come and talk to us. There's many men and women here who want to sit and help you work through these situations. But if you've been divorced and remarried and you've never dealt with God on this, I beg you, don't leave this building without dealing with God. Ask his forgiveness. You may be in here, you may have an unbiblical divorce behind you. And you may need to say, God, I, I can't divorce the new person you gave me because that would be another sin. I'm in this relationship, um, but I want to ask your forgiveness. I made a choice that was not biblical. It was done out of my selfishness and the hardness of my heart. Whatever the rule, what it, not concerning what they did, but on my part, I want to repent of that. Please don't go away and just think, well, he doesn't understand. I, I may not. But this is what God says. And I encourage you. Fourth, Jesus' teaching on marriage was radical. Notice verse 10 and 12. He has a whole different view, right? In the house, the disciples began to question him about this again, right? And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Well, notice they're in the house. I think that's real important because these guys heard that and they said, well, he didn't agree with us. We're done with him. 
we reject him, they leave. Now, the disciples, I think they had the same view of the Pharisees. I think they had the exact same view. Why wouldn't they? They were raised by the religious establishment. They had believed the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 that, hey, just get a certificate and you can get out of this. I think they had that view. And in fact, if you follow this down in Matthew 19, and I'm running out of time, but the, the Matthew 19 is a parallel passage. There, Jesus says that you can't divorce unless for adultery, for immorality. He uses a very strong word for immorality. It's very strong. It's connected to adultery. Um, you, if, you, if you divorce, you're adulterous. He, he's very clear. And then so the disciples at the end of this go, and here's why I think they were bought into this, go, well, if this is true, why should we even marry? So, so God's dealing with these, these 12 men, isn't he? Do you imagine these 12 men with a view of the New Testament view of the current Pharisees? You imagine their view as they start the church of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. That would be disastrous. And so Christ is after them. And so he plainly deals with him. And his instruction was radical. It was completely destroyed. The loopholes the religious leaders had created through time. But with his disciples, he said, look, you do this except for immorality. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 9, and marry another, you commit adultery. And they said, well, it's better for us not to marry then because this is, this, is, this is not good, man. What if I don't like this girl? <laughs> I think they were coming to the conclusion that there's something bigger here. There's something greater here than what they understood. And then finally, I just, I'm out of time, and there's much to talk about here, but we'll tackle this another time. But number five, the glory of God displayed in marriage. And I just want you to make sure that there's such a bigger view of marriage. There's such a bigger view of marriage. Do you realize that? When you start thinking about Genesis 1 and 2, what God did, the kindness of him to choose Eve for Adam, to choose Gina for Scott, that's kindness. Scott doesn't deserve Gina. <laughs> but God does that. And there's such a bigger pur- purpose of it. And then you just get going. You begin to think of Israel, and um, Israel's called the bride of Christ, and they divorce themselves from, from God. And, and Malachi 2.15 says God hates divorce, and it's all in this context of these men, these, this wicked nation that has a God that, that dressed them and, and fed them and gave them everything they needed and wandered away. And then he goes into Hosea and Gomer, Gomer right? And wow, just marrying the name alone would be difficult. But I mean, I want you to marry them. I want you to marry this prostitute because I want them to see my love and my compassion and how I've held on to somebody who has rejected me. And he doesn't leave it there. He moves on to this instruction in Matthew 19. Paul teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 2 of the role of men and women when it comes to instruction. 1 Corinthians 11, Peter teaches on 1 Peter chapter 3 of the role of women, how they win their husbands by submission and love and godly behavior and how men live with their wives in an understanding way. And then Paul puts it all together in Ephesians 5 and says, we are a picture of Christ in his church. And I, brothers and sisters, if I can urge you and beg you and plead with you, that is the greatest example for our marriages. And what do you tell the next generation? Christ didn't love his church, so he left her. Because that's the ultimate picture. And when we stand with those young couples here on this stage and perform marriages, that we, you know that's the point we hit. 
That's the, that's the, the creme de lawn. I mean, that's the topping. We, as married couples, present ourselves as struggles, and, and not perfectly because we're still saved sinners, but yet we battle for that to be a picture of Jesus Christ in the church. A, a, a husband who loves and leads and cares, and a wife who submits and desires for her husband and, and wants to honor him. And that's the beautiful picture. And it takes work because we're sinners. And our hearts get hard at times. And it takes this text to go, Scott, repent. Put your name in there. Don't let your heart harden against the things of God. I have something greater for you. I have a picture for you to be. So much more to talk about. But I promise you, if you battle for your marriage, if you battle, battle for the glory of Christ, you will have joy again. And those of you who are in here for many years, I look at you, I see you here that have stayed married, and, and I know you could preach this sermon as best I could, right? You could stand up here and say, oh, let me tell you about the difficult times. Let me tell you about how God sustained us. If you're a young couple in here, you need help finding an older couple. Say, help me. We want to finish. We want to honor God. If you're in here and you've said... I have an unbiblical divorce. Again, ask you, ask the Lord's forgiveness for that. Deal with him. Stop blaming somebody else. Deal with that. And then move on and walk with the Lord. He'll give you grace. Amen. Father, thank you for this message. This is hard, Lord. These are so countercultural right now, Lord. And it seems that it was countercultural then too, Lord. They, they just wrote certificates of divorce for anything now today, people divorce for anything or don't even get married. There's no concern for you, God. There's no concern for the picture of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ and his beautiful bride. Even within the church at times, Lord. In fact, probably, Lord, what's worse is the church is caving on these views. So, Lord, I pray that you would not let Riverbend do that. We would be a church filled of godly marriages and we'd be a church filled of those marriages who are learning and growing, men and women, maybe who have had, had marriages that were unbiblical and they've repented, Lord. Make us a, a church that, that sees the grace of God in all of these marriages. Lord, there is no church just full of good marriages. All of us have struggles. And we need your love. We need your grace. We need your gospel to take us through these things. So, Lord, cause us to be reminded of these things. Lord, thank you that you taught on this on the road to your death because it was your death that keeps us going in our marriages, that grants us forgiveness when we fail. And so, Lord, we thank you that your death was sufficient. And we praise you for those things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.